Welcome to the Reinventing Education podcast. podcast. Today we're going to be podcast for anyone. Podcast for anyone who's interested in reinventing what education could be. Today we're going to be discussing traditional schools, a security school, and how they approach homework, caring, and feedback, as well as discipline and behavior management. I'm Rob McLeod, and joined as always by the wonderfully insightful Brendan O'Leary. How are you, Brendan? Thank you, thank you, thank you, Rob McLeod, for that kind introduction. I'm fine, and how are you? <laughs> you sound like you're passing me off like some sort of robocaller. I'm fine, how are you? Just getting, I want to open the road for you first, Mac, before I hog the bandwidth. Mm. Well, I'm doing well. Yeah, nothing too wild to report. I think just on the personal level, getting over having been very sick and just starting to feel better again and uh, signed up with a friend for a obstacle race in May. So starting, starting training already so that I don't injure myself and look like one of those guys who showed up untrained and uh, too old to do something like that. So it's keeping me motivated. Decrepit, a decrepit old man. How about school-wise? Any revelations? Not so much. I'm going to pass it back to you this week. You and I, we've been going back and forth talking about a book you've been reading um, that seems to have a lot of similar ideas to what we're discussing, just maybe presented a little bit differently. Yeah, I mean... It, the what you're referring to there, I guess, is this adaptive schools book. I brought I brought it with me. I've been trying to stick to this reading one book a month. This one's going to be a bit of a challenge. It's a bit of a it's a long one. This is a source book for developing collaborative groups by uh, Robert Garmston and Bruce Wellman. I don't know either of those names. However, just in the first few chapters, you know, we've been passing forward a lot of info about just ways to structure schools that really resonate in kind of how what we're saying about being value-laden, being explicit about what you're trying to achieve and what your issues are. And then it jumps into a lot of really quite practical ideas about how you can set up groups to collaborate well together. Obvious stuff like taking pauses, um, setting up group protocols, um, being explicit about your aims. And so I'm really enjoying it. It's a little bit of a heavy read compared to The Boyer that I was reading uh, last time we spoke. I'll, I'll uh, keep sharing with you and I'll jump back in more about it. But in terms of this idea of school being a place that adapts to what is needed because of the complexity of the world rather than just tweaking little problems here and there, it's, it's this idea of everything is connected and we kind of have to be solving those problems in in context for them to have meaning and to move to places we want to be it's not really enough just to mechanically fix the flaws in the organization and actually i would like to do a reverse sponsorship this week i want to talk about the stages program and this actually comes from a former educator terry o'fallon i've had the pleasure of meeting her she's one of the most delightful people i've ever met uh educator for 30 plus years worked as a principal in some really progressive schools. And uh, her work, I believe after leaving um, and retiring from being a teacher was uh, seven years of research, I think went into this for a PhD uh, dissertation. Stages is an integrally based developmental model that charts human development from infancy to the highest levels of development that humans are capable of that have been recorded. 
the model is created by Terry O'Fallon and is based on decades of education experience and more than seven years of research. Now, you and I, we're going to mention it in a minute or two when we get to our in a nutshell segment, but we're a pretty big fan of stages models in general. Like um, we kind of reference spiral dynamics, integral stages of development, um, kind of most famously popularized by the work of Frederick Leloux. Terry O'Fallon's stages model just goes into such a level of detail that it's fascinating. And I keep seeming like it seems like every nine to 12 months, I kind of keep falling back into like, looking at her model and just going like, oh yeah, this is the best model out there. Like one of the most comprehensive and, and just um, thorough. And I, I did have that this week where I went back to her work and I was just like, this is genius stuff. Why am I not using this more often? So if you're into human development and you're into education, Terry O'Fallon is a just wonderful human being and her stages model is definitely worth looking into. Cool. And if you're not into education or human development, you might want to check out a different podcast. There's many about sports or knitting or mountain climbing, gambling, but, uh, gambling high stakes gambling that you might want to check out now. We'll just pause here for a second while you turn off the podcast. The nutshells. In a nutshell segment. Yes. Yeah, so what we've been doing here is trying to really put forward what our plan or our map is for the reinventing kind of superstructure or model. Been playing around with it for a little while and we've been throwing it backwards and forwards. And today is my turn to see um, if I can really get into words what we're about. I've kind of written this down because I think that's the best way I work. I write a little bit, draft it, you know, tweak it a little bit. Um, we tried doing it on the fly, you know, a few weeks back, and I thought it was okay. But I, I like this kind of scripted version. So let me let me read what I've got, and let's see how. See if you want to comment on that once I finish. The reinventing education kind of model. It's not hugely controversial to say that in education and in life, we want what is best for our kids. We want the best education for our kids, and we want this kind of. We have this kind of healthy life, this positive life. So within education, we generally share three aims, uh, building citizenship, uh, work and school preparation, and this idea of self-development. But we may differ in how we, in how we achieve these aims and which we prioritize over others, especially at times of stress and challenge. And it's also pretty safe to say that there are consistent elements or aspects that make an educational establishment or a school. And we here on the podcast have defined these as the individual's belief and responses, the collective community and culture, the actions and resources that you might find, and the systems and physical environments. Now, we can look at each of those aspects as we try to analyze the school. And again, all, everything I've said so far is not hugely controversial, I don't think. We here at the podcast believe that the trouble begins because when we talk about best, each of the different schools or educational systems are driven by a different set of underlying core values. Now, our model here is based a little on what Rob spoke about earlier, the spiral dynamics model of Claire Graves and the work of Frederick Laloux. So what we currently 
see in the 21st century is there's three kind of huge paradigms of school. We have what we call a security-minded school, which you might see as a traditional school, which is blue in spiral dynamics. Uh, we also have an opportunity-minded school, which is what you may call a mainstream school in Britain or North America. And this is in line with the orange color in spiral dynamics. And then we have what we're calling the inclusion-minded school, which you may think of as maybe a progressive school, which is a green in spiral dynamic. Now, each of these three systems has its own values and its own way of being and doing. And one of the issues is that sometimes these values will see another value as doing things wrong. An opportunity-minded school in the mainstream may see a progressive school as doing something wrong. A security-minded traditional school may see how the mainstream schools are doing it wrong. Now, of course, no school fits neatly into any of these categories, but they can be helpful to get to the root of our connections and conflicts and strengths and weaknesses. So each of these ways of being, these value systems, will largely determine how those eight aspects of school look like. So the systems will be affected because of the values. So the actions and the cultural norms, in fact, every single aspect, and also how we achieve those aims of citizenship and work preparation and self-development. Each value system will have its own priority and its own way of meeting those three aims. So here at Reinventing Education, we're exploring what we would say is an emerging fourth value system, one of integration. This value system seeks to utilize the strengths of each of the previous three values to meet the needs of the individuals and community. And rather than bringing anything radically new to the table, it seeks a balance in those existing three values as a way forward to meet the needs of this very wide range of students we have in the current day. I sound a bit stilted because I was reading it, but uh, any, anything you want to throw in there, Robbie? Yeah, you mentioned the diversity of students that we have. And I also just think, you know, we've thrown out the term like VUCA world, the volatile, uncertain, complex, and amb ambiguous world that we are living in today, that this integration value can probably better meet the challenges of the modern context more so than the three previous values. But on that, yeah, I think you've laid out kind of our core components of our map for talking about reinventing education. Cheers. I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to write it down is because there's a lot of moving parts though. It's quite complex. And even after kind of playing around with it for the best part of two years now, we're just getting to the point where we can enunciate those things. So, you know, looking now to internalize that and to apply it in our own lives. And uh, if we move now, I guess, into the big topic that we're talking about in this season of reinventing education, which is the traditional school or the security minded. As you mentioned earlier, we're going to begin by speaking about this idea of homework. In previous episodes, we've spoken about what the lesson model might be and how teaching and learning looks. And today, I'm going to dig into this idea of homework. So what do we got to say, Rob? So we've been discussing school in this episode so far in very abstract terms, these aspects of school and these different values. So what we're doing today is trying to to bring concrete examples in the day-to-day -day world of what you would see in a traditional or security-minded school. And we're starting with homework right now. So a few episodes back, we took a, a virtual tour through a thought experiment 
school where the security value ruled everything. There was no influence of those other two opportunity or inclusion values. So that we're, we're trying to distill down at its core what this value looks like when it's active in schools. And today we're going to zoom in on homework. But what would you see in a security minded school? Well, the homework is obviously assigned by the teacher. It's probably happening daily. It's constant and ongoing. It's kind of pitched though to the bottom 20 to 40% of the class. It's not wildly challenging work. For the most part, it's usually just there as reinforcement, often drill practice of some sort. And it's just something you have to complete. Um, you know, it might be pages from a math workbook that just has extra questions to extend on what you were actually doing in class. Or, you know, if you did an activity in class in science, perhaps you have to do something at home that, that mirrors what had happened. So it's more about reinforcement. It's not about learning something new. You wouldn't be learning something new from your homework and then returning the next day to a expand on it. And finally, when you do bring that homework home, if you need help with it, there's the idea that parents will help you at home if you are struggling with it to help you catch up as we addressed in our previous episode. This is where the duty and the role of the parents kicks in. And if you're not having a problem with it, it's kind of just a check-in for the parents that they are aware of what their kid is working on at school. So that's what homework would more or less look like in the security-minded school. Now, Brent and I, we're going to try and tease apart kind of the babies in the bathwater. So as we move on from the security minded school, what do we want to keep from this approach to school and what do we want to discard? Yeah, I mean, the, the concept of work that you would do outside of school in all of the value systems has its benefits. But if we look specifically about this traditional style school, the homework that we probably had ourselves as, as youths, one of the benefits is that it makes a connection between home and school. It shows the parents what's happening. It keeps them in the loop. And then it also, to the school, shows that the parents are being supportive. So there, there's this idea that the there's a loop and there's also potential to bring some of that school life to home and bring some of that home life back into the classroom. You may not see that so much in this traditional type of homework though, because it is generally, shall we say, skills-based or reinforcement. So it may be a worksheet or it may be completing some work started in class. But in theory, it gives you this opportunity also, as we said previously, to build this relationship between the parent and the child, especially if they're supporting them. It has that kind of consistency. It, it really allows you to just keep in the rhythm of school and know that this is kind of your duty. All of those have some positives in 2020 and people would argue that we do want to make stronger connections between home and school. We do want to keep parents involved as much as possible and we do want to have that kind of shared responsibility. So those are potentially some of the things we would take forward. So anything to add to that, Rob, before you move on to the to the bathwater? No, I want to get into this bathwater and splash around because right now in education, you know, there's a lot of debate going on about the role of homework and parents themselves seem to be fairly split on this matter. You have the parents who who want homework because that's what they did and it helped them become who they are. And, you know, it's, it's in a, a form of accountability and duty for their kid to develop some responsibility, perhaps at home and whatnot. However, as soon as you start to creep into these next two values of opportunity and inclusion, they m will look at homework and they might do it, but they're going to do it for totally different reasons. And ultimately, the opportunity value or orange and spiral dynamics is going to say, okay, we can do the homework. If you can prove to me, this will lead to progress. And if it's not leading to progress, why are we doing it? That's not efficient, nor is it effective. And as far as 
as the inclusion value goes or like green and spiral dynamics, they're going to ask like, does this have meaning? Like if thought isn't being given to the effect the homework is having on students, then they're probably not going to buy in. So for example, like they're probably going to come at homework in terms of thinking like, okay, the students outside of school, this is their free time, their downtime. How is this homework affecting their mental health, their social life out of school, all these sorts of things? Like, so if we are going to give homework, it really needs to be meaningful. And they would just look back at this kind of original security value approach to homework and just think if you're doing homework for the sake of homework, it's just a traditional expectation and it's just a routine that you do, then it's not useful if it's neither meaningful nor does it lead to progress. And so what we'll do is we'll th I'll throw a link in the description from a guy called Alfie Cohn, who's actually, he's, he's pretty deep into this kind of uh, progressive uh, inclusion, kind of green, file dynamics, green value. He's pretty anti-homework, you know, he's, uh, and, and him and, and people like him are looking to prove that it doesn't really have an effect. The results are actually pretty far from clear from what I can see that there are definitely contexts where homework does show progress and actually does support the kid when they come back into school. But, you know, from reading through some of these sites, some of these links, it's it's um, it's hard to pinpoint exactly what type of homework kids should be doing to, to create a benefit, when they should be doing it and how much they should be doing it. But what this traditional value would fall back on is just, well, you do homework, you do it every night and, and it's just done. And the, both the other values would question the lack of the lack of reasoning there. Now, one you mentioned you mentioned that homework is effective in some situations for student achievement, student progress. One of the bathwaters, though, about that is that can actually be used to then make up for ineffective or inefficient time-wasting teaching in schools. So homework can actually be like a, a survival strategy for bad teachers, which is allowing bad teaching to happen because then the onus kind of falls back on the student to be like, well, you didn't really get it in my lesson, but you on your own at home with access to your parents or the internet or whatever, you're going to have to figure that out because I'm still going to mark you and hold you as the student accountable, even if I'm doing a pretty crap job of teaching this to you. Yeah. And without going too far down the anecdotal path, I, I, I have experienced students within a German gymnasium system, the junior high school and high school system that have been sent home with homework that had not even been covered in class because the teacher hadn't got to it or, or whatever. And so the parents were having to find tutors or to teach themselves like grade nine and 10 level math or language that the students were starting from scratch. They didn't conceptually have the knowledge. It wasn't just reinforcement. So this is worse than the case we talked about earlier, where most of this homework is reinforcement. Fair enough. It may be dull. It may be pointless. It may be a struggle. But add on top of that, the fact that it hasn't even been taught and we're, we're off into some dystopian stuff that... Um, I would like to say it's not happening, but I can't believe in the two years I've been away that there have been that level of fundamental change. Um, this kind of leads a little bit into the area of feedback and marking. So this idea of marking work, we call it in 2020 feedback, but actually in a traditional school, it would just be classed as marking. I don't think you'd hear that term. So in the lesson, all the children would dutifully fill in their work, including their homework, fill in the textbook, and they'd write the date and their best cursive. And then they'd hand in the work to the schoolmaster to await their judgment, to await their marking. The teacher would collect in the work and they would mark it completely independently from the kids. They would return it, sometimes with comments, but often without comments, with just errors highlighted. 
Now, if this to you sounds like the normal process for marking or receiving homework, that is very much in line with the traditional or security-minded school. Now, what could be some of the babies, maybe the bathwaters of giving feedback or marking work in this way, Rob? Well, I'm already going to jump a little bit to say the marking and feedback in this way perhaps isn't the most effective, but I know you'll you'll discuss that in a moment. But like at its core, though, we we do just straight up want students to re- receive feedback about their work. We don't want them to do something and their work just disappear into some kind of dark void or, or vacuum or have no concept of how they're doing. And, you know, even in this kind of old school approach, maybe you just see a thing that says six out of 10 on your paper. At least even that is giving you some feedback and evidence about how you're doing. And what I would say is like this kind of approach of like taking papers, marking them away from the kids and then returning like this kind of Wizard of Oz thing where like the kids don't see the marking process. That's not so cool. But I'd like to just shift the context a little bit because one of the true babies, one of the really good things that the security value brings is this master and apprentice model. And that master apprentice model kind of gets like distorted when it's in a classroom setup with one teacher and 20 kids and science lessons, math lessons, English, whatever. But when you're in the context of having an expert tell you what to fix and like correct your learning and it occurs because of work you've done and it occurs as you're progressing towards more accuracy in a skill, especially some kind of like hands-on skill, you know, and even in like complex areas, like having an expert give you the feedback to show you where you've gone wrong is incredibly valuable. Yeah, for sure. We talked a lot about the master an apprentice model. Your teacher, if you're a grade four teacher and you're doing math or language, and we're looking at this closed body of knowledge, your teacher can critique this. They can tell you, fix this, fix this. And the belief within this mindset is that if you do fix it, it will go into your brain, you'll keep it. And the next time you do it, it will be correct. You can argue to what extent that is true or how valid that is. That is definitely the belief underpinning this model. So if we jump over into that kind of bathwater or the stuff that doesn't quite work, as you kind of touched on it, you know, if I look at the work of someone like John Hattie, who's done the visible visible learning, and he's done all these meta-analyses of, of what works to move students forward, very high up in his scale is this idea of giving very specific and actionable feedback that you then let the students work on. And I mean, you, you hear this. You hear this all over in every area of work, life, business. You know, you have to give clear and specific feedback so that then the students can use that in their work. Now, the, the traditional teacher might say, well, this is very clear and specific. I've told you what's wrong and I've told you how to fix it. And so that answers it on the most basic level. But I guess what we're saying as we move forward, we are in 2020, we're giving kids more open-ended tasks. Hopefully we're giving them higher levels of complexity. And with those higher levels of complexity, just fixing your spelling, fixing your grammar, the mechanical aspects of it, they're not going to get you very far. You know, don't get me wrong. Those basic skills are key, but with any level of complexity, that's not the thing that you're going to need that really clear feedback on. So when so this would be kind of the fix to that that the the, the other values would see, especially that um, that opportunity value. Now as you move for more into that kind of progressive kind of mindset, even within some of that opportunity value, you would start to move towards like very specific one to one.
on feedback that really helps students. I think the big bathwater here is you just don't get that. This is a one size fits all. It's done behind the curtain, as you say. You know, very much what you and I would do is we would sit down with the student and we would as much as possible mark while they're in the room and give them quite specific feedback. If you flip it's it, that, there, it's that transparency that's the key part there. Transparency in two in two ways. Transparency that the students should be able to understand, for example, how they could have gotten 10 out of 10 point points, whatever, however you're marking it. The students should understand the grading scheme that was be, that was used independently of you. And you, But then this flips back to the teacher as well. That teacher needs to be using the same objective criteria across all students, across all work that's going on in the classroom. Now, unless it's a completely differentiated thing or whatever. And that is, that is one of the bathwaters in the security school. You're a teacher marking 20 essays. The feedback of what you said was wrong on one kid's essay, you may or may not have applied those same criteria to the next handful of essays, but you'll jump to like maybe, oh, but this thing was wrong in this one. So I'm going to take off more marks for this. And there's not a transparency. If you sat down with two of those tests or three of them side by side, three of those essays, and you really started grilling like, so why did this one get this mark and this one and this one? Oh, because this here, but oh, did you do that on the other ones? Oh no, you know, because there it was more of an issue of this. And it's like, no, once you get to that opportunity value, you need a clear and fair assessment between all of them, like a, like a scientific experiment. You need to know that in each of these, this was done objectively, clearly, and transparently. And like you said, the second part is just the transparency of marking with the students. Sure, maybe you, you're not able to always mark the work in front of them, but when that work is handed back to the student, the student should, should theoretically also be able to grab someone else's work and be able to like justify and explain why that student got their work in comparison to theirs. I think you've picked apart a whole bunch of things that, that would not necessarily be apparent in the traditional security-minded system. Because the other thing is that feedback's generally not effective. And then this is also going back to the Hattie stuff, from my understanding. The efficacy of that feedback is much, much greater when it is delivered one-to-one while you're looking at that person with the work in front of you. So this idea that we call conferencing, where you sit down with a student, here are some of your errors. What do you think are some of your, here are some of your weaknesses and strengths. Here are some of your challenges. Here are some of the things you can do to improve. What do you see as your own challenges? So now, you know, we're starting to talk about this idea that everything here is connected. We're already off into assessment. We're off into the teacher-student kind of relationship. And this touches so many areas. It was much, much more simpler back in the old days when you could just give them a piece of work, mark it, and give it them back. And it's not such, and it's not the old days. When you're written, if you did write something, you're written feedback didn't have to reference, say, a curriculum objective that both you and the student are accountable for. You could just write, and I've seen this on tests in 2019 uh, and in the last nine years of teaching, I have seen things like try harder or my favorite one was do better next time. I know. <laughs> like this is my heart is breaking, but that an adult wrote that on a nine-year-old's or do better next time. That was the feedback. And in my opinion, that's coming from that security-minded value because it's not referencing those opportunity curriculum objectives or learning goals and insert from the inclusion mindset how are you even going to do anything 
Well, it's out of your control as well. So it's kind of, this is the thing, as soon as you, you said, well, is that a criteria for their success to do better next time? Yeah, that's what they should do. So can we write that down and see how that's in the control and how we're going to scaffold them towards doing better? Oh, well, actually what they need to do is this, this, and this. And that's what we'll talk about much more as we move towards that value of actually having criteria and then being objective and measurable. And trying to put myself in the shoes of someone who is in this security value, they're looking at this test and seeing that the student didn't do their duty. And in the security-minded world, the teacher did their duty to share the information that needed to be known. There was the test, the assessment after the fact, and it was the student's duty to show that they did their student duty of putting that information in their head and being able to explain it back. And the kid didn't do it. So you need to do better next time. You need to do your duty and get the information, put it in your head and show me that you know. Yeah, and it's putting ourselves in that mindset. We can definitely get in the position where we say your job was to come in and learn this stuff you didn't learn it so next time go away learn it do better end of story and I guess that does work to some extent for very mechanical and knowledge-based stuff so if you've given someone a spelling test if that's how you assess or teach this aspect of language and you've given them a spelling test and they've only remembered three of them or four of them fine try harder there's not really much more nuance needed in that you just needed to remember more of these words and I guess what we're kind of saying is that again we're shaking one tree and it means that we shake the other. You know, spelling is an important part of language, but it's a very, very small part of the composition of, say, an essay or whatever. And so it's hard to unpick that if you're in that traditional mindset, because it seems that those conventions of language get so much more priority that why would you focus on feedback on any of the other stuff unless you were doing this accurately and correctly? So it's really hard to get in that mindset and, and then argue from that point of view and someone will come in and say, but what about composition? What about organization? What about the development of ideas and word choice? Yeah, but this is about spelling and I've given them the feedback they need, which is do better. They know what that means. That means learn these words more. I'm not going to write that. So it's it's hard because we're just saying, well, don't just don't have a criteria that that is that narrow and that easy to just like there's only one way you can do it wrong. And that's by not remembering the words that I've asked you to do. So I guess what we're really saying is that that feedback isn't terrible if that is what you're doing, that really highly mechanical, there's a right and wrong answer. And what we're really saying underneath in this conversation is the other values of opportunity and inclusion would just say, like, why is that the only thing you're teaching and assessing and marking? And one terrifying anecdote, and then we'll wrap up here, I think, for today. Um, I have also just, <laughs> I'm laughing, but it's because like part of me is dying inside remembering this. But I've also seen a student get their work back and literally just the word bad written on the bottom of the paper. I mean, good which is so insanely unprofessional and insensitive and everything. But it's like there are adults walking around there in charge of classrooms, professionals who will just straight up write a word, one word, bad. And this just leads into that criticism of the traditional values, security values of not necessarily having empathy with students in this realm of learning. It is your duty. Just do it. You haven't done it, but it could have been worse. It could have been very bad or even very bad. I'd see me. Dun, dun, dun. But, you know, we're on this sliding scale and, you know, we're shaking this one tree and it's shaking the others. There's a little bit of, as we say, a little bit of, of, of babiness in there of, you know, master has told you how to fix it. But, you know, it's as with many of these things, more is probably needed in any classroom that has any variation of students, which is to say all of them. <laughs> 
feel like this podcast is turning into the David Letterman show because we get to the end and we go, oh yeah, we one of our we ran out of time. We didn't get one of our guests out here. They'll be back next week. Uh, so we said we were going to talk about behavior management and discipline and how you deal with issues of non-compliance, which is kind of what we're hitting on here of not doing your duty um, in the classroom, but also just more so socially. Like what do you do with those behavior challenges? And we'll take a look at the behavior management and discipline approaches of the security school, as well as a few other themes next week. Brennan, thanks. I'm enjoying these deep dives into the specific nuts and bolts of each of these values. Yeah, and thanks. If you stuck around to this point in the episode, please communicate with us on Twitter. We are trying to post things that are regular, that are of interest and importance. Um, and yeah, thanks for your support. And please get in touch with us with any questions, comments. Ding, 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 ding. And if we, and if you have reached this point of the podcast and you now realize you don't care about human development, nor education. There's D&D podcasts. There's um, cooking podcasts. There's news podcasts. You got, give me three. So I I like one called Weird Studies. It's kind Mm -hmm. of cool. And uh, I I listened to the Adam Buxton one. He's he's funny. He interviews some some funny people. So even if you do like human development and education, go have a listen to Adam Buxton's podcast or the Weird Studies or Atletico Mints. If you're a, if you're, if you're a British person and you're up for a little bit of Bob Mortimer silliness, why don't you throw a couple of bones their way, Rob? What podcast have you got for these humans? Yeah, first, I just want to give a shout out to a friend of mine, uh, Dr. David Miller. He has that naturopathic podcast, Naturopathic Medicine is of interest to you. Um, great guests, just other naturopathic doctors who have just shared a ton of very valuable information that seems to be largely missing from most of our healthcare systems. Um, I've been listening to The Portal by Eric Weinstein recently. Um, and uh, Radio Lingua Network, Coffee Break French is one I've been listening to a lot lately. Ooh la la. As I desperately try to learn French at an older age and uh, constantly have regrets that when I was a young child in Canada, I didn't take learning French more seriously. And if you do like uh, human development, the Daily Evolver, blah, Daily Evolver with Jeff Salzman is a great one as well. So there you go. Enjoy. We love you. These two. Thanks, Bye, Brandon. Rob. Thanks, Rob. Bye, Rob. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks, Rob. And.